Let me invite you to turn your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It was great last week being able to worship on Christmas, but, and this hopefully is uh, not going to diminish your thoughts of me, but I actually think I'd rather worship on the on January 1st together than Christmas Day. It might be partly because I grew up in a firefighter's home, so we celebrated Christmas when Dad was not at work, right? So the, the 25th was never that, like, the thing for us, because sometimes if you're a firefighter, you can't go, no fires today, we're not going to work. So so it floated around for us, so I just never really fixed, like, the the day as being the big thing as much as it was remembering Christ's birth, and Obviously, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not something revealed in Scripture that it was December 25th anyway. But January 1st shows up every year, and it's the start of a fresh year. It's an opportunity uh, to, to look at uh, the grace of God over the past year and to seek His grace for a new year. And I think that's, that means it's a great day to worship. Right to to come to the Lord and look at Him as the provider of all that we have and the one for whom we are to live. And a fresh start calls for fresh blessings. I mean, some of us look back over the last year and think, man, I'm glad that's done. And you look out the new year and go, if it was going to be like last year, then I'm going to need help, Lord. Maybe you look over the last year and go, boy, it was just uh, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And you look out this year and say, Lord, do it again. Right? But the reality of it is, is we stand uh, in, in the ways we mark calendars sort of at a, a crucial turning point. And, it, and I think it does us good to, to think and reflect about that, to, to consider how, by God's grace, uh, we could make the most of the year 2023 as we can for as much of it as he gives to us. Because we may not finish the year, Jesus could come back. Or he may take us to himself. And we want to live it for his glory and make the most of it for the honor of the Lord. And so I'd like to do this morning and this evening is focus on a concept that that is a biblically rooted one, and that is the issue of stewardship, that we are entrusted with things by God and responsible for the stewardship of them. And we're going to do so by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'd like to read verses 1 through 7, take a moment to zero in on the primary intent of the passage, but then sort of step back out and look at what teaches us about stewardship. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. 
Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So let me set the context a little bit. Uh, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth. He was the one who brought the gospel to Corinth. Chapter 4 tells us he considers himself their father through the gospel, that he was the one who pioneered the gospel ministry to the city of Corinth, and God graciously used the preaching of the gospel to call people to Christ and form them into a congregation, which was called the Church of God in Corinth. That's how he describes them. In chapter one. And, and it was a, a profound work of God and a unique congregation that enjoyed the blessing of God. But along with that blessing, uh, were a lot of tensions and troubles. He, uh, we know from scriptures, he actually wrote four letters to the Corinthians, two of which are included in the canon of scripture. So it was a ministry that was dear to the heart of the apostle Paul yet wasn't always in the best relationship to Paul because when Paul left, false teachers came in to try and damage the work. And a part of what they did was try and pit people against one another and against Paul. And so Paul, what we call 1 Corinthians, is a letter responding to information that Paul had received that their church was divided. They weren't of one mind. We know that in chapter 1, Paul heard this from the house of Chloe, that this was going on, and so he writes to them about it. And they also had written to him with a bunch of questions, and he starts to pick those up and answer them later in the book. So it's a dynamic interaction that's happening between them. And you're, no, you're probably familiar with the fact that they had these cliques, what we would call. Some were saying, I'm of Cephas or Peter. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, and then the spiritual ones, I'm of the Lord. And, and so there's, seems like there's sort of a four-way kind of divide, but as you start to work through the book, it starts to become clear that it's primarily a two-way divide. That's why verse 6 says, I've applied these things to Apollos and myself. Because what seems to be at stake is a group of people in Corinth wanting a more sophisticated, attractive kind of ministry. That's their desire. And because Apollos was an eloquent speaker, a powerful rhetorician, they had taken Apollos as sort of their banner. I don't think Apollos was in agreement with that, nor do I think Peter was in agreement with it. I certainly know the Lord wasn't in agreement with it, right? So, so the people waving the banner weren't actually accurate representatives representatives of the people. They were using that, that figurehead for their own advantage. And so the people who wanted a sophisticated ministry, something that was attractive to the Greeks, 
were waving the banner of Apollos. In the first two chapters, Paul's confronting that and saying, we can't abandon the offense of the cross. Right? It is, it is the cross that is the power of God unto salvation. It is the wisdom of God. So we can't turn away from that. But then Paul really starts to burrow down on the reality of it. And that is that, that the whole point of the division, when they say, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul, is that they've, they've totally misunderstood the very nature of ministry. It's not about the servant, it's about the master. And in chapter 3, Paul starts to say that. Who's Apollos? Who's Paul? Simply instruments that God used to accomplish his purpose. Apollos, I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. Because the church, he describes as God's temple, God's building, and as God's field. The people who work in the field, the people who build the building are not the ones that should get the attention. It should be God and God alone. And we have to be careful about how we build and how we serve. And so he says this all the way through chapter three, and then we come to chapter four, and he wants them to understand you shouldn't be elevating these servants of the Lord. Because they're actually God's servants. They're servants of Christ. They're stewards of the mysteries of God. And it's actually God who will assess them. And so the primary focal point of the first part of chapter 4 comes really in the statement in verse 5. Look at what he says there. He says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. So so it all pushes to this sort of command from Paul to stop judging God's servants before the time. Because ultimately, and you probably picked this up as we read it, because all human judgment is really insignificant. It's a little thing that I'm judged of you or of any human court. I don't even judge myself. All human examination is really insignificant and it's actually insufficient because Paul says, I don't know anything about my, about against myself, but I'm not by this acquitted. That is, Only God can fully and finally pass the judgment that needs to be made. So stop it. That's his point. Stop it. Right? So that's really the sort of big picture of what he's driving at. But the way in which he makes that point picks up this concept of stewardship. Why don't we pass final judgment on God's servants? Because they're God's servants, not ours. Because they're accountable to God, not us. Right? And, and so this idea of stewardship he raises in verses one and two is, is an important part of understanding how we go about serving the Lord. So what I'd like to do this morning is look at that, if I could call this sort of the secondary truth that that is raised here and in other passages. So I'll bring some of those in uh, to help us understand it. 
But, but you and I are servants of Christ as well, and therefore stewards. And we need to understand what that means so that we can live it out properly. So four, if, what I'm going to try to do this morning, if you're, if you're trying to keep score, right? Four components, right? Four components of biblical stewardship. And I'm just going to put them under words and then unpack them. The first word that I want us to remember is the word authority. Authority. Notice in verse 1, Paul describes himself and Apollos, and I would suggest beyond that, as servants of Christ. As servants of Christ. So, so the principle here is simply this, is that believers are under authority and live as servants. Right? They're under authority and they live as servants. Now, you might say, well, he's talking about, he's talking about the apostles or he's talking about preachers. And he certainly is that. But notice the language we saw in verse six. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. And then he drops down to verse seven and makes a very broad application of that. For what did, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Right, so, so he actually extends the point out. Yes, he's talking about Paul and Apollos, but he then says, now I've been talking about Paul and Apollos for your sakes. So that you will learn two things. Really, verse six is looking back and saying, so that you won't think wrongly about them. And then verse seven says, but also so that you won't think wrongly about yourself. Right? Because your arrogance that's showing up, that's what he's going after. Their arrogance is that they're using, and I'm going to put it in air quotes because these guys certainly weren't that, but they're using their chosen celebrity servant to advance their own agenda. They think more highly of themselves than they ought to. And Paul wants to go after that. He wants them to see that no, they, they are servants, right? They are not masters. They're not the boss. They're the one who's to follow the Lord, not dictate the direction of things. And it's rooted in what Paul says about the work of God to redeem us. Here in chapter four, just jump real quickly to chapter six near the end of the chapter. And look what he says about all believers in verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, notice this, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Do you know why we are servants of Christ if we've been redeemed? Because the very word redeemed means we've been bought. Christ has purchased us by his blood out of slavery to sin so that we might be his servants. He owns us. We are not our own. We are his. We are servants. And that language, that concept doesn't sit well in our hearts because the chief sort of chief value of our culture is to be ourselves 
to call our own shots, to not be people under authority. I want to do my own thing. I want to control my own life. I want to, I want to determine what I do and when I do it and where I do it and how I do it. And the ultimate goal, really, of our culture is to be completely free from the kind of obligation that this text says is the hallmark of the life of a Christian. I don't call my own shots. I am not the master of my life. I don't have that right. I have been bought by the blood of Christ. I am not my own. I'm his. Do you realize how radically different buying that, believing that deep in your heart on the first day of the year 2023 is? That every moment of every day that lies out in front of me in this year are the Lord's, not mine. That his will is the thing that's supposed to control my life. Everything I think about what I would like to accomplish this year, what I would like to achieve or do or enjoy, every one of those things must come under submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Is that what he wants me to do? Is that what he wants me to accomplish? Is that what he wants me to enjoy for his glory? Right? It is not that there are 365 days, actually, yeah, there'll always be 365 in a non-leap year. And, And the weirdness about this next year is there's actually going to be 53 Sundays. Right, We're starting on a Sunday and ending on a Sunday. So we get 53 of them. It's a great year. Right? It is not that I take that 365 and then I subtract 53 from it and go, okay, Lord, you can have those. I got the rest. No, he owns it all. Every day, Every hour of each day, every moment of each hour is the Lord's. And we are his servants. And we must, we must recognize that the reason that Jesus lived and died, Romans 14 says, is so that he would be the Lord of the living and the dead. So whatever we do, we do to the Lord. We do it for him. It's his life we are living. He owns it. The very nature of conversion is coming to understand that Jesus Christ died for me, so I ought to live for him, 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for me, so I should live for him. We're servants. And that means we have to wrestle continually with what God wants us to do. 
I mean, and, and not just like in a passing, you know, cliche kind of way. I mean, does, does your understanding of God's will control, have active, functional control of your life? As you've thought about what's going to happen this year, did you work out from this standpoint? What do I know God has said I am supposed to do this year? What do I know the will of God to be? And and you can start right there with the scriptures, right? You've heard me say this before. There's a like a Bible box. And nothing outside of obedience to God's word, right? God does not want you to sin against him this year. So any plans in your life that are contrary to the word of God are outside of God's will for you. I can tell you that, right? He wants you to grow into Christ. He wants you to be conformed to his will. He wants you to do what he says. So inside of that Bible box is that word of God having active functional control on you. Every one of us in this room have God-given roles that we are. You could list, I mean, I'll just do me as an example just to, to help you think about it, right? All right, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a pastor, I'm a citizen, right? I could keep going on. And here's the thing I know from the scriptures is that God says something about all of those. He has told me what he expects of me. And he wants me to do it. Right? And and when I say wants me to do it, I'm not just like, hey, it might be nice, Dave, if you did it. It would be, I died on the cross and rose again so that you might be my follower. So follow Do my will. Carry out my purposes. Live for me, not yourself. Unless we understand that authority structure, we won't see ourselves in stewardship properly. There is a master. It's not us. There is someone who owns everything that you have, including each breath you take. He owns it. And he's given it to you to use. It's to be used under his authority. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, I'm a servant of Christ. Right? We have been entrusted by God with these things. We serve Him. And that leads us to the second word. And, and I'm going to use the word assets. That is, the owner has given to us resources or assets to use. I see that in this text. Look at the end of verse one. He says, we're stewards of the mysteries of God. And again, I don't think it's restricted to just those who are entrusted with a preaching responsibility, because go down to verse 7, where he finishes up this kind of conversation, and notice what verse 7 says. 
For who regards you as superior, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, so here's the principle. Believers are entrusted. They are entrusted with resources by the master to use for his purposes. Okay, Paul could say about himself and about Paulus and all those who have a stewardship of the word. We are entrusted. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. I'm applying this to Apollos and myself for your sakes. Verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? That is, why, why are you boasting like this is of your own origin? Like you're the one who provided this. No, you've been entrusted with this by God. He's given you assets to serve him. So the primary one about Paul and Apollos is the word, but it's extended out to congregational life, verse 6, so they wouldn't be arrogant in their relationship with one another and to their personal understanding of what they've received. This is where I'd step out of this passage. If we took a big view of stewardship, we could say, uh, and obviously seven points that way, what do you have that you did not receive, right? So everything comes to us. But we see specific texts of Scripture that talk about us, for instance, having a stewardship of time. We're supposed to make the most of it, redeem the time because the days are evil. God has allotted to us a certain amount of time on this planet, and we should be seeking him for a heart of wisdom that we might use it most effectively for his glory, that we would be opportunistic about it. Okay, because we only have what God gives to us. We have not one minute longer And so God entrusts us with time to use for his glory. We know from Matthew chapter 6, he entrusts us with financial resources, treasure, which we are to lay up in heaven rather than on earth. And so God gives us resources. In 2 Corinthians 9, it's this. He's, He's faithful to give us that which will supply for our needs and an abundance for good deeds. That God gives us what we need to care for ourselves, fulfill our biblical responsibilities, and then an abundance to let loose for his glory, to sow a harvest of righteousness. And I think one of the besetting sins of American culture is that we reverse that. God gives us an abundance for us and a sufficiency for every good deed, right? We, we reverse the scale. We think the primary reason for our resources is for us to do what we want. And then with what we have left over, we then do a little bit for God. And I think that's why so much in our culture is actually starving because God starts to close the spigot when we prove ourselves selfish. I think one of the things that God has blessed our church with is the fact that if we buy that principle, we will always be trying to have an overflow from us to minister to other people. And when God sees that he can trust a church or God can trust a person, 
God keeps filling it up. Because he knows he's giving you seed to sow for a harvest of righteousness rather than giving you seed to consume upon your own desires. We have a treasure given to us to be generous and abundant, laying up for ourselves a good foundation for the future. How are we doing with our time, with our treasure? Obviously, we have gifts that are given to us that we might serve Christ. Every believer has received a spiritual ability by which the people of God can be built up. And it's a stewardship, right? We're going to look, Lord willing, tonight at 1 Peter. But he says, as each received the gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given us gifts and abilities by which we should serve him, and it's a stewardship. We'll give an account to the Lord about that. We have families given to our care. Do you realize, parents of children in your home, that God merely deposited a child into your home for you to exercise biblical stewardship over until that child steps out? He entrusted that child to you to raise him or her in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and one day they will step out to live their lives. It's a very short window within which you have a stewardship. And that stewardship should be a high priority in your life because it's what God intended for you to have that child under your care for you to do what God wants you to do in their lives. Right? It goes, it goes God through you to the child. The child never becomes the idol of the home. Your family can't be centered on your children because one day they're going to be gone. And if you've turned your whole home into a merry-go-round around your children, then your marriage has been set aside. And you know what, guys? That wife you have was a stewardship entrusted to you that you would love her like Christ loves the church. Ladies, that husband you have is a stewardship from God to exhibit the character of Christ in loving him and serving him the way the church serves Christ. These are all stewardships entrusted to us, assets that the God of heaven, in his sovereign providence and in his graciousness, deposited into your hands. He's given them to you out of a demonstration of his kindness. What are you doing with his resources? Right? I mean, if I, if, if I was going away for a year and I said, hey, here's this asset of mine. I, I want you to, to take stewardship of it. I want you to be responsible for it and care for it and use it. Let's imagine you did that and there's something very precious to you that you put in the hands and care of somebody else and you come back in a year and they've completely destroyed it. They've squandered it. They've wasted it. It's in disrepair. The instructions that you gave 
have been completely disregarded as if they could care less about what you wanted and cared only about what they wanted. You'd probably be ticked about it, wouldn't you? Let's be honest, though. Look back over 2022. All the things that God entrusted to us and the specific instructions which he gave us about how to care for them. Right? He wrote down what he wanted us to do. How'd we do? How did we do? When we look at that last year, can we say with good conscience on the first day of this year, Lord, I failed in many ways, but my heart's intent and the striving of my life was to carry out your will. I did not do it perfectly. I could not do it perfectly. And I know you know that. You know my frame, it's dust. But my heart was to be a good steward of everything you entrusted to me. Can we say that? Will we be able to say that 52 Sundays from now? When we gather back, if the Lord wills, on December 31st, 2023, will we look in the rear view of this year and go, Lord, thank you for all that you entrusted to me. I hope and pray that my stewardship of it was pleasing in your sight. Or will we sort of take the gifts and take off on our own instead of seeing them as assets entrusted to us. And we really need to think that way, right? Because that's what humbles us. What we have, we've received. But it also should encourage us, right? What we have is what God wants us to have. You know, one of the mistakes that often happens is for us to be thinking we can't really be good stewards because we don't have something. And you know what? You have exactly what God wants you to have. You have the gifts that you're supposed to have. You have the responsibilities, the relationships, the resources. You have what God wants you to have right now. It may not be all that he wants you to have forever, but it is what he wants you to have right now. And therefore, he brings with those resources what you need to be a good steward of them. And we need to stop looking at the other side of the fence and using that as an excuse for not living today the way God wants us to live, to do what God wants us to do, to strive to be a servant that's pleasing to the Lord. Because that should be the focal point. Look at the end of verse 4, because here's the third concept. All right? The one who examines me is the Lord. So authority, assets, and here's the third word, accountability. Believers will give an account to God for our stewardship. Now, let me be clear. This is a, an examination of service, not 
not our standing before God as his children. In other words, it's not about salvation. Paul here is talking about stewards and servants. Stewards and servants will give an account to the master for how well they've served him. When it comes to my standing in Jesus Christ, that is something that is credited to my account by the grace of God, covered in the righteousness of Christ. I will never, I will never be condemned because the righteousness of Christ is my only hope, and it is a fully sufficient hope. But it is a serious mistake in handling the scriptures to jump from that to say, so I can actually do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, and there's no consequence in terms of my eternal reward. Right? The scriptures call on us to live in light of the promises of God with a commitment to God that is living in light of treasure laid up in heaven. Just take that one issue, right? If, if my righteousness in Christ makes me absolutely completely acceptable to God in such a way that my use of my resources doesn't matter. Why is Jesus saying, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven so you can have reward? I mean, it doesn't matter if you're going to take justification truth and wash it across sanctification and service. The fact is, how I use my resources is significant in terms of treasure laid up in heaven. When it says, as you receive the gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, seems to imply that I might be negligent in my stewardship of my gift. In fact, Paul challenges Timothy and says, do not neglect the gift that is in you. So everybody in this room who knows Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God has come to dwell in you. And when he came, he brought some enablement for you to use for the good of the body. And you can neglect that. And that would be bad stewardship which would mean, potentially, that your labor for Christ would be wood, hay, and stubble rather than gold, silver, and precious stones. And it would be burned up. Your life, since you spent it for you, produces nothing of eternal value in terms of your service for Christ. And folks, we need to understand that because There's a day coming at the judgment seat of Christ where we will have our service for Christ evaluated, whether it has been worthwhile, profitable, or whether it's been worthless. If we've chosen to live for this world, then we'll have our reward in full. If we've chosen to do it so that we can be seen by people and praised by people, Matthew 6 says, then we'll have our reward in full. You'll have gotten the pat on the back about being a good little Christian and that's all you've had because you did it to be seen by people rather than doing it for the Lord who sees. 
And Jesus motivates us that direction. He pushes us in that direction so that we would serve him. I mean, do you want a life of lasting significance that you can present to the Lord as an offering? I mean, do, is, that, that, is, is that the way you're thinking? I mean, I, I just texted with someone this morning. You know, a bunch of preachers, we text, encourage each other, pray for each other. And one of, one of them sent, who's a little bit older than me, and I sent back, he said something about Happy New Year, and I said, Happy New Year back. I said, you know, we don't have many more of these left. Let's use them for God. Right? I mean, the, the closer you get to the end line, to me, isn't like, let's chill. It's like, I'm almost there. And I'm going to be going to the presence of the Lord And I want to be able to hand it to him as an offering. Lord, here here is the offering up of my life. It's not much. But by your grace, I hope it's pleasing to you. A fragrant, pleasant sacrifice. Right? Why else would a Christian live? So you can wrap your hands around stuff that, that's going to crumble and fall apart. And the minute you die, you leave it all behind. Everything you live for is in the rearview mirror. Wouldn't you rather have it? Everything you live for has been sent ahead to the Lord. That it's been laid up where he is so that you can honor him as he deserves. I mean, Paul's calling us to recognize how deep that evaluation is going to be. Look at the language in verse 5. The Lord who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of people's hearts. Right? The, the assessment of God is going to be full and complete. You are not going to pull anything over his eyes. And it's a false understand the gospel that makes us careless about living for Christ. You know, sometimes you hear this statement, and I know it's usually said as a joke, um, and many a truth is said in jest, but people say, well, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. Have you ever heard that? It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. It means they're just going to go do it, and, you know, they get in trouble, they get in trouble. But if I have to get permission, it's going to, you know, could be, could be tricky. But honestly, there's times I wonder if that mindset doesn't sort of filter in through sloppy theology into the way we live. That is, instead of actually stopping and asking ourselves, is this what God wants me to do? Permission. Right? Is my life actively controlled by this word so that I'm wrestling through, is this the will of God for me? I'm thinking about what he's given to me, the the responsibilities, the roles, the resources, and I'm going, Lord, what do you want me to do with all these things? How do you want me to live? Wrestling through those to have a sense, if I could put it this way, of permission in our heart that this is the way I should spend this window of my time. 
I've got a new year coming in front of me. What should be the most important things in my life? Lord, given what you've said to me in your word and what you've entrusted in my hands, here's what I think I should be doing. Here's where I think my life should be going. Seeking some sense of an awareness and, and, and heart commitment to that and then stepping out into life to live it for the Lord. I think sometimes we're sort of like, just roll the calendar over. <laughs> right? Oh, well, we finished 2022. Lord, I know I probably didn't serve you the way I should, so please forgive me. And then we step into 2023 to do the exact same thing. Words, we, we take control of it. We live it for ourselves. We're not, not like we're saying, hey, God, I don't care. We're just sort of like, ah, you know, forgiveness is easier than permission. I'm just going to sort of do my thing, and if it doesn't really pan out right, I'll ask God, and he'll forgive me, because that's what he does. We're not actively recognizing the authority of God entrusted to us in assets and for which we'll be accountable. Which leads to the fourth word. Go back up to verse 2, and that's the word ambition. Here's what our ambition should be. It is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, that we be faithful. Believers should aspire to a faithful life. That should be our ambition. And it comes with the relationship and the responsibility, right? I'm the Lord's servant. So my task is to do what he wants me to do. Right? It really is. I mean, it's as simple as that. I'm his servant. So I need to do what he wants me to do. And he's given me responsibilities, right? I, I mean, I've said that. I believe this in my heart, right? I, I've said this to couples getting married. Your choice to get married means you believe that God wants you to serve him married versus single. The only reason you get married is because you believe that's how God wants you to serve him better. You don't go, okay, Lord, I'm going to get married, and then after I get married, we'll figure out what's going on. No, it's like, that's why. Right? When, when God gives you children, they come with this little responsibility tag on it. Right? The overarching sort of statement is, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But there's a whole lot more said about it. Do you know what the Bible says? Right? If I sat down and started to quiz you, okay, so tell me everything you can think of from the Bible that parents are supposed to do with regard to children. Would your list come close to as long as the one God gave you? Or husbands or wives? Servants of Christ in the church, right? Do we really understand what the job description is and and then have a heart to fulfill it, to be trustworthy with what God's given us, to do what God's called us to? Because it's part of the relationship and responsibility, but ultimately it's rooted in the very character of God that that formed us, right? If we want to be godly, you want one very clear characteristic of God is that he is a faithful God. 
He's true. Right? Everything, everything about the idea of God that is right, he matches completely. He's truthful. Right? Everything that he knows about stuff, and he knows it perfectly, right? He knows it exactly as it is. Whenever he speaks about it, what he says reflects what he knows about it. There's never any gap between there. He speaks the truth because he knows the truth. But he's trustworthy too. Everything that God has said he will do, he will actually do it just as he said it. That's the God we serve. And so we're supposed to reflect him. So, so my life should be marked by that kind of trueness, which represents integrity versus hypocrisy. As I don't give a false image to make people think one thing when I'm really the other thing. It must match up that, that I should be truthful. That is, that I'm marked by honesty and sincerity rather than duplicity. My words aren't wiggle words. My words aren't, you know, artful dodges. Yes is yes and no is no. And that I'm trustworthy. That I do what I said I will do. My life is dependable and I actually think predictable. If you are the person of character, people will know how you will respond in circumstances. You're not fickle. You're not unreliable. You are trustworthy. You're a trustworthy servant of Christ. Because we're under Christ's authority, entrusted with Christ's gifts, and will give a crown to Christ for our use of them, we must really genuinely strive for faithfulness in every area of our lives. So can I just challenge you? Look, look at your heart. As we end a year and start a year, look at your heart. How do you view the Lord's claim over your life? I mean, really, do you see yourself as the Lord's servant bought by him? And would, would his assessment match that? Are you just sort of giving the Lord the edges of your life? Right, the overflow, but the heart and core you're really about what you want. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I really believe this. I've said it before. I think the test of this is really how often we're doing things that we just know is the right thing to do. And sometimes we wish we just didn't have to do it. Right? If the stuff that I do is only what I want to do, as long as I'm a sinner, then that means I'm clearly ignoring some of what the Lord wants me to do. Because <laughs> some of what his will for my life is, is going to go against the grain of my fallenness. Where, where are the points in your life where you're going, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do. I bow the knee. 
I'm going to do your will. Change my heart on this because this isn't coming easily. I'm going to do what you want me to do. If you're never going against the grain of your fleshliness and against the culture around us, my guess is you're not following the Lord very closely. You'll have to examine your own heart on that. But do you take the time to do it? Do you take the time to go, Lord, how surrendered am I to you? Do an inventory, right? What's in your hands? I mean, it'd probably do us all good to sit down, just, just make a list and say, what are my roles? What are the responsibilities I have? What are the resources God has given me? These are the things that I'm going to give an account to the Lord for. What's the accounting right now? And how do I need to get after that? Because we should be making fresh resolve in our hearts to close the gap between what we have a God-given, implanted desire to be. That is to show up in the presence of the Lord and hear these words. You know them, right? I want to show up in the presence of the Lord and I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? That, that should be our heart. So, so here's the question. Is there any gap between that and where we are right now? And, and what, what can you do to close that gap? Don't make a list of 85 things. Or I'm going to borrow a, a line that I, th- I like from a book, right? What's the one thing? What's the one thing that by doing it, all the others become easier or unnecessary. Right? You can't do 85 things this year, but what's the one thing if you zero in on and say, Lord, I know I need to grow in this area. I need to, I need to be more faithful in this area. And if I'm more faithful in this area, then the rest will become easier. Right? What's that thing? What is it that this year you're by God's grace going to zero your attention in and say, Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to be a servant that can hear, well done. What's that going to be this year? What does God want you to do? I don't think he's hiding it from you. My guess is I ask that question right now, and if you've got a heart for the Lord and you've had an ear to hear what his word says this morning, you know what it is. Your conscience is testifying to you. Yeah, I need to do that. What is that? Lay it out before the Lord. Needs be, confess. Claim his promise of forgiveness. Commit yourself to Christ. Restore the things that have fallen. Renew the things that have become complacent. Let's serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God. You've loved us more than we could ever comprehend fully.
Your heart toward us is open. Your mercy is extended. Sadly, we're so prone to look away, to be distracted by the things around us, to get out of order, to have our spiritual wheels get out of alignment. So Lord, please help this start of the year to be a time of realignment, of recalibration. May we have hearts that are tender before you so that we might be good stewards of all you've entrusted to us. At the heart and core of that is that we have been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, would you press that assurance on the heart of those who've trusted Christ? And would you open the eyes of those who may not know Christ? to recognize that they need a Lord and Savior to rescue and redeem them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.